patients with chronic gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD are at higher risk for developing esophageal cancer, but it's not clear whether screening all patients would improve detection or decrease mortality. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, consulting editor for CMAJ. I'm joined by Dr. Scott Clarenbach, one of the authors of a clinical practice guideline that looked at the evidence behind screening for esophageal adenocarcinoma. Dr. Clarenbach is a professor in the Department of Medicine and Assistant Dean Health Outcomes at the University of Alberta. He is currently chair of the Alberta Expert Committee on Drug Evaluation and Therapeutics and a member of the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care. The guideline he co-authored is published in CMAJ. I've reached him in Edmonton. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for joining me today to discuss this important topic. Thanks, Diane, and uh, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Well, could we start this podcast by telling listeners about esophageal cancer? How common is it, and, and what is the prognosis like? Esophageal cancer is comprised of two different cancers. There's esophageal adenocarcinoma, which is the topic of the guideline, as well as esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Now, it's not all that common. It ranks as about the uh, 19th most common cancer, with an incidence of about 5.6 in 100,000. If we look just at esophageal adenocarcinoma, which is the topic of this guideline, it's around 3 per 100,000. So quite a bit lower than other common cancers, such as prostate, breast, and colorectal, which are around 60 to about 120 per 100,000. While it's uncommon, uh, the patient outcomes are quite poor. The five-year survival rate was estimated around 15% for esophageal cancer in 2019, and that ranks among the poorest five-year survival of all cancer. So why is the prognosis so poor? It tends to be a quite an aggressive cancer when it's detected, and uh, it's one of those cancers that's uh, typically found at some of the later stages, and because of its location and its aggressiveness, the outcomes are quite poor. So it's really important for us to understand then the, the risk factors for esophageal adenocarcinoma. What are they? Yeah, so some of the major clinical risk factors include advanced age over the age of 50, Chronic gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, is another major risk factor. And there's a few others, such as being a male, sex, family history, white race, obesity, and smoking. One of the ways of detecting, or the way of detecting esophageal adenocarcinoma is often through endoscopy. Sometimes things are found on endoscopy, like precancerous conditions. Can you tell us how the presence and detection of precancerous conditions plays a role? Yeah, so if uh, you do endoscopy and do a biopsy, you can find changes in the cells lining the esophagus, including uh, Barrett esophagus, which then can also uh, be associated with some degree of dysplasia. Barrett esophagus is uh, when there's a change in the, in the cells lining the esophagus. It's seen when they do a biopsy and look at the cells in the microscope, and they become more like intestinal cells than esophageal cells there can be further dysplasia of those where there's more abnormality in the cells that are seen. And when you, when you find Barrett esophagus, and particularly when you find dysplasia, these are precursor conditions. They're not all that common. They occur about 1% to 2% of Canadians, but they occur more often in people with, uh, with GERD, for example, where it's up to as high as 5 to 15%. 
So it's thought that at least in some patients, there might be a sequence of events. You might have GERD uh, that might cause some changes, some precancerous changes in the esophagus. And some of those might progress to esophageal adenocarcinoma. Now, you've already talked about this link between GERD and esophageal adenocarcinoma. So it sounds like there's sort of a, an association in terms of a, a, like a linear sort of link towards sort of esophagus and onward. What's important? Is there anything else that's important for physicians to know about this link? Yeah, there is a bit of a link, but uh, it's not completely straightforward. So GERD is very common. It occurs in about 10 to 20% of the population where you get the reflex of stomach contents that can cause some troublesome symptoms. And as I mentioned previously, some patients with GERD can then develop Barrett esophagus, then low and then high-grade dysplasia. So it's thought that uh, in patients with chronic GERD, about 5 to 15% might develop Barrett esophagus. Those who do then develop Barrett esophagus may have a risk of developing esophageal adenocarcinoma. But the risk is still pretty low. It's about 0.3% uh, per year to 0.5% per year. So pretty small numbers. But that's the whole reason why there's a question of screening. If you can identify patients who are at high risk and then identify precursor conditions, perhaps you might be able to lead to earlier detection and better outcomes. And that's really where this guideline comes in because there are so many people with GERD. Perhaps you can tell me what the task force means by GERD. So we initially defined chronic GERD as symptoms of GERD for greater than uh, 12 months or the use of a proton pump inhibitor or other pharmacotherapy for greater than 12 months. But we were forced to expand the definition because of the definitions used in the underlying evidence. So we relaxed that definition a little bit to include any study on chronic GERD based on whatever, whatever study author criteria were used. This is one of the areas where we think uh, further research is needed to really have a, a more precise and definite definition of what chronic GERD refers to. Now, how would that differ from dyspepsia? Dyspepsia is typically is uh, more of abdominal discomfort, abdominal pain that may or may not be associated with GERD. So it may be indicative of another gastrointestinal disease process going on. And so for listeners, sort of the symptoms of GERD tend to be things like heartburn, sort of water brush, that type of thing, as opposed to sort of an abdominal kind of discomfort. Exactly. Okay, now before we get to the recommendation, I think it's important that listeners know who are the patients that are not included in this guideline. The guideline refers to uh, adults over the age of 18 with chronic GERD. Uh, but does not refer to patients who might have other sets of symptoms. You mentioned already dyspepsia, so abdominal pain. And there's also alarm symptoms, such as pain on swallowing, recurrent vomiting, unexplained weight loss, anemia, loss of appetite. All those patients with those type of alarm symptoms should be uh, evaluated, referred to, and managed appropriately. Further, uh, patients who are unresponsive to GERD treatment or have other upper gastrointestinal disorders, such as dyspepsia, uh, again, clinical judgment should be used. 
But I should point out that those uh, patients with those types of symptoms wouldn't necessarily be referred to as being screened. Those are uh, patients who, where they have a, a symptom complex that a clinician would use their clinical skills and judgment in order to provide appropriate care. Screening in this context refers to all patients who have GERD should undergo a, uh, an intervention or diagnostic test. When we're inviting people to be screened, I think it's really important that we make sure that screening leads to clinical benefit before we advise a large number of patients to undergo uh, screening. And, th and that's an absolutely critical point, the difference between screening and actually, you know, investigating somebody with symptoms, um, particularly for this and, and for the other guidelines that the, the task force has uh, prepared. In this case, it's somebody who has symptoms of GERD, but they do not have symptoms that make you think that they have esophageal cancer. So that's an absolutely critical uh, point. Now, the task force went on to make one recommendation. Can you tell us what that recommendation is? Yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. We were looking at that question of whether screening improves clinical outcomes in patients. And as you mentioned before, when we're looking at screening, where we're inviting otherwise healthy people to undergo a relatively invasive diagnostic test, we better be pretty sure that there is reasonable evidence of clinically important benefits to screening. Uh, not everyone wants to undergo an endoscopy. There can be anxiety related to that. And furthermore, it's use of a uh, finite healthcare resource. We did a very rigorous, thorough review of the evidence, and unfortunately did not find any evidence of a survivable benefit from screening for esophageal adenocarcinoma or precursor conditions. And as such, we recommended not screening adults over the age of 18 with chronic GERD. This is a strong recommendation, uh, but there's very low certainty evidence. Can you help readers understand what the task force means when they call uh, a recommendation strong, particularly when it's based on very low certainty evidence? Yeah, that's a great question. And sometimes that can be a little bit confusing. So how can you make a strong recommendation when the evidence underlying it is uncertain? We use the grade methodology, which is, allows us to be very specific in terms of why we're calling something strong or not. And the reason why this one is strong is that despite the low certainty evidence, there's really no evidence of benefit at all. Uh, there are potentially some harms related to the uh, performing endoscopy, including reports of anxiety in some patients. Uh, furthermore, screening 10 to 20% of the population who may have chronic GERD would have very important resource implications. Furthermore, we look at patients' values and preferences, and there wasn't really a strong indicator that patients wanted to be screened either. It was quite variable. So when we put all those things together, when there's no evidence of benefit, but those potential negative aspects, so potential harms, resource implication, uh, that led us to making a strong recommendation against this screening procedure. One thing I always find interesting when I review guidelines is how few studies there actually are done for some important questions. And this is one of those guidelines. It, it was a real surprise to me um, when, you know, looking over the studies that were able to be included, how few of them there were. So there are a lot of gaps in the research. 
Um, can you tell us what some of the gaps are? Yeah, Dan, that's a great point. It, and it still surprises me that even when we look into areas where we think just from our medical training, our experience, that there must be great evidence around it. When you really dig into it, you realize just how sparse or weak that evidence is. In this case in particular, there's only a, a couple studies and it involves a very small number of patients. There's really no good randomized control trials that have been performed. So ideally we'd like to have some large scale randomized control trials looking at clinically important outcomes to guide whether screening for uh, esophageal adenocarcinoma is a benefit or not. Right now, uh, currently more research is, is required. So basically, and in the quality, I guess, um, as you said, I mean, that some of the studies that, that you found were more retrospective cohort studies. And, and as you, you said, you're calling for like actual trials. Yeah, that's right, Diane. Prospective randomized control trials instead of retrospective studies, which have their inherent biases, would be ideal. Furthermore, uh, if we had better evidence on identifying predictors of who is at greatest risk of developing cancer, that might lead to a more targeted identification of, of patients who might benefit from screening. Right now, that information is lacking. We talk about sort of screening via endoscopy. Um, people are starting to look at other methods of screening. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so there's some less invasive or less resource intensive methods of, of screening. So like uh, swallow devices, et cetera. And uh, some evidence is emerging around their use. Right now, the, uh, their place in diagnostic testing and particularly in screening is unclear. But uh, there might be potential for those to, to have a benefit. Uh, but we need to really know from uh, properly conducted randomized controlled trials to be sure. So it certainly sounds like at this point, there's no evidence of benefit in the studies that we do have. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done before that the recommendation uh, not to screen would change. That there simply isn't enough to, to move forward. As you said, when you're talking about such a huge percentage of the population having GERD. That's right. So one of the things we talked a little bit earlier about some of the alarm symptoms. And uh, one of the things that I always find very um, interesting and, and with the task force and a very obviously important part of what you do is that you do look at patient values and preferences and you've talked about that that already um, and I know that for your guidelines now you actually do surveys you do focus groups to sort of figure out what what people like uh, what they would prefer what they're concerned about uh, with screening which is which is really important um, in developing the guidelines now as clinicians we have a patient sitting in front of us and we have to make a decision about screening. And um, some people have sort of expressed concern, well, what if the patient has sort of all, all these risk factors? You know, they're overweight, they're male, they're over 50, they're white, they smoke and they have GERD. Does that change anything? Dan, I, I think what's important to recognize here is, is what we mean by a screening recommendation versus what's uh, appropriate clinical care. A screening recommendation would, would mean that any person who has chronic GERD would be invited for screening. And we need to be, as I mentioned earlier, we need to be very sure that there's net benefit by doing that. Um, in this case, there might be net harm because of the possible uh, side effects or harms of the procedure, as well as using a, a scarce resource. 
in a lot of places, the, the wait list for endoscopies are quite, are quite long. But that's very different from a clinician seeing their, a patient in front of them uh, who might have a very particular set of symptoms that the clinician may feel they need to investigate further. But then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, I, I wouldn't put that in the same category as screening. That would be uh, being aware of alarm symptoms or applying clinical judgment for investigation and management of other concerns that they may have. So I think the important point for all of this, while a, a blanket um, recommendation for uh, not screening, as you said, you know, 10 to 20% of the population who happen to have GERD, um, that when a patient is in front of a clinician and, and the, the clinician is concerned, um, you know, and the patient is willing to undergo the test, that that might be a circumstance where they uh, might choose uh, to, to go ahead and, and to do the endoscopy, for example, in this case. Yeah, and it's a commonly heard statement, but uh, screening recommendations uh, don't replace clinical judgment. Which is a really important point. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this, uh, this important topic. My pleasure. Thank you, Diane. I've been speaking with Dr. Scott Clarenbach. To read the guideline he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Consulting Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.